Luke 1 through 32. I don't think we're going to read all those verses. We'll kind of move along through it. And, uh, but let's begin by reading the first five verses. So follow with me into your Bibles as we look at the first five verses. And the whole multitude of them arose and led them unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he is the Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were more fierce, more urgent, I think some translations say. They were more urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, to this place. When Pilate heard he was from Galilee, he asked him whether or not he was a Galilean. Just bow in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your, your precious word. We thank you what we can learn from the word of God and apply it to our lives. And Father, teach us this morning. May we have open ears and open hearts to receive from what you have for us this morning, each one of us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just to get a context of what is happening in this chapter, verses 1 through 32, we've got the, the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have initially the trial uh, with the Lord Jesus with Pilate, which begins here. And then when Pilate finds out that he is from the jurisdiction of Herod and Herod is in Jerusalem, he sends him over to where Herod is. And Herod interviews the Lord Jesus and after he, it says in verse 9, after he questions him with many words, he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate again has an interview with the Lord Jesus Christ. The chief priests are there, and it's in the public, and there are many people there. And uh, they cry louder that, they should, that he should crucify the Lord Jesus and that Barabbas should be released. And he says he washes his hands of it. And they be, he begins to say, he's an innocent man. And they cry louder and louder. They say, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, he gives, he releases Barabbas, and he allows the Lord Jesus Christ to be crucified. And near the end of this section, as he's going out to be crucified, women of the city come out in verse 26, and they lament. They follow him, and a great number of women it says, lamented and cried out. And he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So we want to think about this chapter together. But let's get some context. Let's just back up a little bit and turn to the previous chapter, last couple of verses in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, the Lord Jesus is under a trial with Caiaphas and Annas and the high priest of that, of that time period. He is taken, and in verse 63, he is taken by the temple guards, brought to uh, an illegal trial uh, with Caiaphas and Annas. And the temple guards take him in verse 63, and they held the Lord Jesus. They mocked him. They smote him. It says they blindfolded him. They struck him in the face. And they asked him, and they said, they blindfolded him, struck him in the face, and said, Prophesy, who was it that struck thee? 
and many other blasphemous things they spoke against the Lord Jesus. The scribes, the elders brought the Lord Jesus to the high priests, and the high priest said, began to question him. And they said, are you the Christ? Tell us. Now in this passage, it doesn't say this, but the Lord Jesus and all the other gospel accounts, it says he answered them nothing. Didn't answer their, uh, their question. He says, are you the Christ? And he said unto them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And he says, hereafter, the son of man shall sit at the right hand of the power of God. When they said, when he said, and, and uh, then they said all, thou art then the son of God. And he said, you have said it, I am. Now you can't tell in this passage, but right at verse 63 to verse 64, something took place that's never mentioned in the New Testament. But Bible scholars believe it happened right at this place. In Isaiah chapter 50, it said he gave, he gave his back to the smiters and gave his cheeks to them that pulled out the hair. The Lord Jesus' beard was pulled from his face with rods. They took, they blindfolded him and they struck him with rods in the face. We find out also from other passages that they buffeted him with clenched fists. They punched him in the face. Of course, there was a crown of thorns upon his head. But these were the afflictions on the face of the Lord Jesus. At this point, they uh, beat him with rods and they pulled the beard from his face. And at this, with, in this condition, he goes and has his interview with Pilate in chapter 23. Now, as we think about this chapter, we say to ourselves, what, what is the application for us? What do we learn from the trials of the Lord Jesus? What can we apply in our lives? And I think one of the things we apply in our lives is none of us, I don't think there's anybody here that enjoys the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. No one likes the pruning work, the pruning knife of the Lord Jesus on his plants, we as, as believers. We don't like that. We don't like the cutting work. Uh, chipping away of a diamond to, so that it can reflect the light of God more perfectly. None of us like that. None of us like uh, that sanctifying hand of the Lord Jesus in our lives, the lessons he teaches us. And this is a picture for us. We will all, one way or another, we will all stand before men, and we will all suffer some of this kind of thing, not nearly like the Lord Jesus is here, Many of us in this country will not. Some in other countries will. Some in persecuted lands will suffer like the Lord Jesus, maybe even worse than the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that is the sanctifying work of God in our lives. You know, C. Spurgeon was one of the great preachers, I think, that ever existed. And if you ever read his sermons, you can learn a lot about Scripture and a lot about himself. Um, Siege Spurgeon died. It was a very fruitful life. Began preaching at 19 years old. But he died at 57 years old. He suffered from gout a great part of his life. In fact, when he preached, he couldn't stand in the pulpit. He had to sit on a bench because the pain in his feet was so great, uh, he couldn't stand. His wife was an invalid from the age of 32 years old. 
He would push her in a wheelchair everywhere that they went together. They went to France often on vacation to the beach, and you could see him pushing his wife in a wheelchair. For nearly 30 years, he did that. And they asked him one time, they said to him, they said, uh, where did you learn the most lessons in your life? Where did you learn the most about your walk with God? He said, he said something like this. He said, all the lessons, all that I learned in my walk with God from the good times, from the good times in my life, I could lie on the head of a penny. Now, an English penny is even smaller than an American penny. <laughs> he says, but all that I've learned... He says, all I've, I've learned from the furnace of affliction is incalculable. And he says, I thank God for the furnace and the flame. Now, I'm not sure how many of us could say that, but that's what he said. When you come to a passage like this, we think about ourselves. God wants to conform us to himself. We will one day be in difficult situations and God will use those situations to conform us to the person of himself. And that's what he wants to do. We're going to be put into that furnace sometime or another, some way or another. And we can learn from the life of the Lord Jesus how that is through these three trials. The first trial, when you come to these trials, you first of all, you see ungodly, corrupt men interviewing, beating, afflicting, the Lord Jesus. Now, we can take punishment when we received it for righteous causes. The Lord Jesus is taking punishment from unrighteous, ungodly, corrupt leaders. Very hard to take that kind of punishment. He's taking punishment. His beard is pulled from his face by corrupt temple guards. He's being beaten and blindfolded and struck with rods by corrupt men. With lies, we find out later, telling lies and false witnesses, they bring forward. Pilate was a corrupt leader. Herod was even a more corrupt leader. The Lord Jesus says about Pilate, who had, the, who had John the Baptist put to death and had him beheaded, he called him a fox. And that, that was a, in his day, that might be, be a, a, a strong criticism or insult, but in their day, it was a, it was a strong insult to, uh, to Herod. You begin to see the things that they did. These men, uh, they begin to afflict the Lord Jesus. And in this, we see the way the Lord Jesus responded. I want to say, think about three lessons from this passage about the trial portion of this passage. What are the three lessons, maybe four lessons for us that we can apply to our own lives? I think one of the first things, first lesson is that it's interesting, the Lord, Jesus, the Lord Jesus did not defend himself. It's not so clear in this passage, but we look at the other passages of Scripture, the other parallel passages of these accounts, and we find time over time it says, and the Lord Jesus held his peace. He did not answer a word. Now keep your finger there in Luke chapter 23. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 26. This same passage in uh, Luke 22 with Caiaphas and the high priest, Matthew 26 and verse 62. It's very important, I think, when you look at these kind of passages to compare all the gospel accounts because we get a fuller understanding 
about this. Verse 62, they brought false witnesses. We don't see that clearly in our passage in Luke's gospel. The high priest arose and they brought false witnesses. And they said, answer thou nothing. What is it that these witnesses witness against thee? And Jesus held his peace. We're going to take some time and look at this a little bit later. But one of the first things I think, when we are unjustly accused, when we are ridiculed, when we suffer unjustly, when we are afflicted unjustly, maybe not physically, emotionally, verbally, from friends, sometimes from friends within uh, your own circle of Christians, sometimes from unbelievers. I think one of the good things to do is not to say anything. One time I got a letter, an email from a family, from a man uh, in our assembly uh, who had been with us for two years. And I'm sure all the elders here and every elder in every assembly will get an email or a letter like this. And it was a long email, and he criticized me and criticized, I think, faith and criticized others. And uh, I think there were some lies and some mischaracterizations. And it was a, it was a hurtful, uh, unkind, unfair, uh, unjustified letter. So uh, I showed it to Faith. I said, what do you think I should do? Should I, should I send back even just a short email? <laughs> Maybe just one paragraph. Maybe I should just write one paragraph. Yeah, because, you know, your flesh says, Let's, you've got to do something, right? You, 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 you want to do something. So I said, no. The Lord, I just maybe put on my heart, every inch of my being, every molecule of my being wanted to defend myself, wanted to say, wanted to correct all the mischaracterizations. But I said, no, I didn't do it. I didn't reply at all to that letter. Now, that's not to say I never replied, that on every occasion that I got a letter like that, I did not reply. (laughs) There was times I did, but this time I didn't reply. And about a year went by, and there was a funeral in the Tampa area at Carrollwood Bible Chapel. And uh, I went to the funeral. It was Todd Aiken's funeral. And they would know, uh, some of you here might, might know Todd Aiken. And this brother went. And we pulled into the, the parking lot, and he pulled in right next to me. <laughs> about a year later, we got out of the car. I said hello, shook his hand. The first words out of his mouth were this, I should never have written that letter. <laughs> First thing he said, I should never have written that letter. Will you forgive me for doing that? Now, that would not have happened if I replied in the same way that he wrote me. I think it's a good thing that we don't defend ourselves. There may be times where we pray and the Lord says, yes, clarify certain things, you can defend yourself. But I think as we look at some of the lessons here, don't defend yourself. Another lesson I think we see here in this passage is listen more to God and the promises of God and the word of God and what we know about God and what he tells us about ourselves than what other evil men are saying to us at that moment. Listen more to what you know is true 
about yourself and about your future and about who you are in your position in Christ than what evil men, corrupt men, lying men and women and people say about you. What was the Lord Jesus doing, I think, when he was holding his peace? What was the Lord Jesus doing when he was answering nothing? What do you think he was doing? I think he was listening to the Father and listening to Scripture and listening to the Word of God and the revelation of God. And we should be doing the same thing. When we hear evil men and lies and mischaracterizations about ourselves, about our walk, about our faith, about our love for Christ, about who we are as Christians, remember, don't listen to evil men. Now, sometimes there's always a 10%. There's always a 10% bit of truth in every time somebody criticizes you. I was reading an article about L.L. Bean. We buy clothing sometimes from L.L. Bean. And there was an article, and they said they get hundreds of complaints. I find it hard to believe. Who could, who could not like L.L. Bean? Uh, it's all American, right? All American clothing from Maine. Who can not like L.L. Bean? But they get hundreds and thousands of complaints, and they say most of them are not justified. But we know there's 10% of truth in all of the L.L. Bean criticisms that come in. We listen to, we try to listen to the 10%. So when you're criticized, listen to the 10%. And the rest of it, give over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't listen to evil men. Don't defend yourself. Remember your purpose. It's interesting when the Lord Jesus here in each of these passages, especially in the passage just prior, he doesn't defend himself, but he does this. He says, you shall see the Son of Man. Coming in glory. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the throne of glory. Doesn't defend himself, doesn't entertain any of those lies. But he does tell them who he is. He does remind them of his purpose. He does remind them about he what he as the as the Christ will do one day. Don't let criticism, don't let false accusation, mischaracterizations distract you, divert you from the purpose that God has called you for. And the Lord Jesus did that. He didn't let them divert him. And then one last thing. Don't forget, they're spiritually blind. Look at the last passage uh, in uh, chapter 22 of Luke. The Lord Jesus, they say, Art thou the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Now, why do you say that? He said that because they, although they were priests and high priests and religious leaders, they were spiritually blind. They did not have the spirit of God indwelling them. They did not know God. God did not know them. Though they had positions of leadership, they were as blind as anything else. And when you get, sometimes when you get a, a nasty letter or a criticism, maybe repeatedly, remember, never forget, those, many times, those who are saying those things are spiritually blind. 
or at that particular time are out of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're acting in the flesh, out of the flesh. We remember all these kinds of things because God has lessons for us in these kinds of very, very difficult situations. We see the trial in verses 1 through 5 with Pilate. Then we see a second trial with Herod. Let's just look at that and read that passage for a few minutes. And he answered and he questioned them. This is Herod. He questioned him many words and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that same day, Pilate and Herod were made to be friends together. And before that, they were at enmity with themselves. You know, there's a great lesson, and we've talked about it a little bit uh, just now, but I want to look at something else. It's a little bit of an apologetic aspect. Um, turn to Isaiah 53 for a moment. We find over and over again in Isaiah 53... It's a very interesting thing in verse 7. Of all the statements in Isaiah 53, there's only one statement that is repeated twice. And it's repeated twice in the same verse. Notice what he says in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And I would say this is during the entire period of the trial and also the crucifixion. We know there are seven statements of the Lord on the cross. But he says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now, I have read many times, and I have heard preachers say many times, the Lord Jesus in his trials, the Lord Jesus on the cross, opened not his mouth didn't say anything. Now, a skeptic will come to you, may come to you, if they hear that, or a skeptic may come to you and say, look at Isaiah 53. It says he opened not his mouth. But when you go to the gospel accounts, we find that he does open his mouth a number of times. Many times, we find with Herod, He didn't say anything. He answered him nothing when he interviewed him. When the, when Caiaphas and the high priest interviewed him, he didn't say much, but he did answer them. He did open his mouth. In verse 67, they say, are you the Christ? He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. He does open his mouth. When he's interviewed by Pilate, He doesn't say much, but he does open his mouth. So you say to yourselves, well, what is the answer? What does it mean? Uh, Is it a contradiction of Scripture? Is is uh, Is this an apparent contradiction of an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage? Should we take the Bible and throw it out? Are the other skeptics correct when they say this is an an aspect of uh, a, a, a fallacy or a problem in the text. 
And I would say absolutely not. Absolutely not. When you have a passage like in Isaiah 53, where it says he opened not his mouth, doesn't mean that he never said a word. What that phrase means is that he does not defend himself. He never defends himself to all the accusations. And that is the idea in, in Isaiah 53, verse 7. When it says he opened not his mouth, means he did not defend himself. Caiaphas and Annas, they brought false witnesses who could not agree with each other, but they brought false witnesses. And they said, what do you say against this? And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. In Matthew uh, 26, 62, he answered them nothing. The only time that he ever says anything is when he says who he is. When he says who he is and what he will do in the future. So he says in chapter 22, they say, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. In Matthew 26, he doesn't answer them anything regarding that question, their questions, or the false witnesses. They ask him over and over again. He doesn't answer, but then he does speak. And when he does speak, he says who he is. He gives facts about who he is. And he says in verse 69 in chapter 22, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit at the right hand of the power of God. They say, Art thou then the Son of God? He says, You have said it, I am. He says who he is. He doesn't defend himself against false witnesses, against mischaracterization, against lies hurled against himself. But he does say who he is. So what lesson is that for us? I think the lesson is this. When we are witnessing, we have opportunities to, to share the gospel. If we are personally criticized, we have a, a friend in our chapel, and a couple of us go down to the downtown part of Tampa, which is called Ybor City. That's where there's a lot of bars and a lot of people at night. And we'll go down there, we'll hand out tracks, and we will talk to people. And a, a lot of times... There's a lot of uh, criticism. Sometimes they mock us and they make fun of us. And uh, they'll talk to us, but they'll talk to us in a mocking way. And I've sent to my friend Brent and Adam and some of us said, you know, we don't reply to that. We don't defend ourselves to that. We don't defend the mocking and maybe an insult or, or, or a, a cutting remark. But before they leave, what do we do? We share who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to build ourselves up. We don't have to show that we are not what they say we are. All we have to do is defend the Lord Jesus Christ. Say who, we, who he is. Facts about who he is, what he has done on the cross. Facts about coming judgment. Facts about the gospel and salvation and faith and trust in, and trust in God. And I think that's a great lesson here. He did not defend himself. But he did say who he was and what he would do in the future. Now, we only have five minutes left, and uh, I'm only halfway through this section. But we want to work our way through it, and I'm going to try to end right on time. 
We come to the next section, the final interview with Pilate, the Lord Jesus, with Pilate. And the leading Jews came at this point, and they were in that interview. And there was also a time where it was public. They go outside and they present the Lord Jesus in a public way to the Jewish people. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, he said unto them, this is verse 13, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. I have examined him before you. I found no fault in this man touching the things that you accuse him of. So they brought a minor accusation. They said, we want you to put him to death. Pilate says, I do not find him guilty of this accusation. I find him to be innocent. And I'm going to let, I'm going to scourge him. And I'm going to let him go. What happens? We find they begin to, to raise their voices louder. They cry, verse 18, they cried out all at once, saying, away with this man, release to us Barabbas, who for certain sedition made in the city, and for murder he was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spoke again to them, but they cried out louder again. This time they said, away with it. The first time they said, away with this man. We will have released to us Barabbas, a murderer, a killer, an insurrectionist. And they cry even louder saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, what evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will chastise him. I will scourge him and let him go. And they cried even louder in verse 23. And the voices of them and the, and the high priest prevailed, were louder and louder and stronger and more determined. And verse 25, and so he released to them him for sedition and murder who was cast into prison whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So Barabbas is released. Many years ago, there was a, um, uh, a great Bible teacher. I think he died in 1921. His name was C.I. Schofield. And he wrote many books, and he was a wonderful preacher. And... Um, and God used them in many ways. And he had a famous sermon. And his sermon was called, The Gospel According to Barabbas. And I'm going to share with you some of the points in The Gospel According to Barabbas. And I think it's very interesting when you think about these points. Because it's a great, Barabbas is a great illustration of the main important parts of the gospel. First of all, it's interesting the name Barabbas means son of the father. We have two sons of the father, the Lord Jesus, and you have Barabbas. Abbas means, or Abba means father, uh, an endearing way that we would call father, Abba father. Bar means son of, Barabbas. 
It's interesting that here's Barabbas, he's in prison, and I'm using my holy speculation just to kind of paint the picture a little bit. Here is Barabbas in his prison cell, and the other prisoners with him or other cells, and he looks out the window, there's three bars there, and he's looking out the window, and he's looking out uh, to Calvary's Hill, and he sees Roman soldiers there erecting, building, erecting crosses. And he says, it is mine in his heart. One of those crosses is for me. I know what I've done. I know I'm guilty. And one of those crosses is for me. Maybe it's the middle cross because I was the worst. Maybe it's the left cross. Maybe it's the right cross. But one of those crosses is for me because I'm guilty. I've done these things and I'm going to go to death. I will die for my crimes and what I have done. He knows he's guilty. I think he also knows, and I'm going to use my holy speculation in this aspect, he knows that the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely innocent. It's interesting that the other two thieves on either side of the Lord Jesus, we don't know how this took place, but one of them says, we are guilty of what we have done, but this man has done nothing amiss. He knew that, and maybe the other thief knew that. Maybe it was widely known that this whole trial of the Lord Jesus was all a sham. The Lord Jesus was absolutely innocent, absolutely without sin in this regard. And he knows that he is guilty. He knows that that trial of the Lord Jesus, that he is innocent. And one day he's in his cell. He knows in a short little while, maybe the day before, He's going to that cross. There's a knock on the door. Or a guard comes with his keys. And he says to Barabbas, he says, you can go free. You can go free. Someone else is taking your place. And you can go free. Now, Barabbas knew Jesus was his substitute. He knew that he didn't deserve it. He knew there was nothing that he ever did to have someone be his substitute. He was not good. He didn't deserve it. He hadn't earned anything. His whole life was a life of sin, crime, insurrection, and murder. He didn't deserve any of that. But the Lord Jesus took his place on the cross, and he could go free in his life. What a great picture of the gospel. He didn't deserve anything for the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus. We don't deserve anything. There's nothing that I've ever done that earned the Lord Jesus to go to the cross for me. There's no one in this room who's ever done anything to earn the fact that the Lord Jesus would go to the cross for your sins. None of us. There's nothing. If we weighed all of our good works together, we took all of the good works of all you in the room, all of us in this room, and all of those in the world would never be enough to earn the right for the Lord Jesus to die for us on the cross. Psalm 49 and verse 7 and 8 say something like this. It says in Psalm 49 verse 7, 
It says, no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a payment for him, a ransom payment for him. He says, for the ransom of a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. King James says it ceases forever. The NIV says, no payment is ever enough. There was no payment ever. We could never bring a payment. We can never bring our good works. The Lord Jesus does it out of grace and out of mercy, out of thankfulness. Does it have mercy to us? And I'd like to think also, and maybe I'm wrong, I'd like to think also that after he was freed, he went to the place of crucifixion. Maybe he went there where the, when the cross was laying on the ground. They would put a cross on the ground. They would dig a hole. They would lay the person upon that cross on the ground, and they would nail him while he was on the ground, nail him to the cross. Then they would lift up the cross, and they would slide it into that hole. Now it is said, and I'm going to tread a little bit on next, uh, next week's uh, preacher, but it's said that the first words of the Lord Jesus Oh, the seven great statements happened when he was on the ground, having those nails nailed into his hands and his feet. And the first great statement, and maybe Barabbas was there, after being released, went to the place of crucifixion. See the, he wanted to see the person who would die in his place. And he may have heard these words. Verse 34 of chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did Barabbas become a Christian? I don't know. I don't think we can say that. But he heard those words. And I know this much. He was thankful for the Lord Jesus, that he did that in his place. I wonder if you know the Lord Jesus this morning. You know, I was raised in a church like this, and I went to meetings like this many, many, many times. And I heard the gospel many, many times, and I walked out of a door like that many times, not believing on the Lord Jesus, not making that stand, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a little bit over time, but I just want to say this one last thing. There's, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, there's three things you have to do. Number one, you've got to admit that you are a sinner. And I fully admitted that. I knew I was a sinner. I think Barabbas fully admitted that he was a sinner. Number two, the second thing, A, is admit that you're a sinner. B, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he went to the cross and he died in your place. Barabbas historically knew that he believed that Jesus went and died in his place. I don't know if he believed in his heart on Christ as the Christ. Well, there's one last thing you have to do. And a lot of people forget this last part. You have to receive. You have to go. You have to make a statement to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I want that salvation. Confession. I want, I repent, I turn my back, and I want you to be my savior. Many people believe they're sinners. Many people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But not many people say, I want you to be my Savior. 
I believe you took my sins. I believe there's a great exchange, and I want to follow you, and I want you to be my Savior. I trust you've done those things here. It took me 23 years to get to that last part. And I hope that you, everyone here, knows the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the work of God that you do in our lives, the sanctifying work of God you do in our lives. We thank you for the pruning knife, and we thank you for the way you put us through the refiner's fire and that you conform us to the person of Christ. Continue to do that. May we be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.